Hello, this is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day from the 9th Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna. I'm with Don Tapscott, Chief Executive of the Tapscott Group. You, For years and years, you've been sort of charting the rise of digital in many, many parts of business and enterprise and society, haven't you, Don? Well, it's not that many years. I mean, 41. <laughs> Who's counting? Yeah, but right at the beginning, you were you were kind of in on the beginning of the digital revolution before people really realized what was happening. Well, my first book was 1981, and it argued that computers were going to become a communication tool and everyone would use one. The book did not sell well. Uh, my mom bought most of the copies, I think. But yeah, Well, you weren't advertising it on the Internet in those <laughs> days, were you? Exactly. No, the big reason that people said I was wrong is that managers and professionals would never learn to type. As basic as that. Yep. I became a typing evangelist. All these profundities were reduced to the question of typing proficiency. In those days, people would say, yes, I use computers, or rather my secretary does. Oh, if you used a keyboard, then people would laugh at you. Like, hey, where's your secretary, man? <laughs> of course, that was for largely individual computers. There were mainframes, but it was a very separating experience. The network didn't really exist then, did it? No, the only people who used computers in 77, when I got going, were programmers. Word processing hadn't really come into the office for secretaries yet. It was just beginning to. What was it that made you see its potency so early then? Well, I'm a researcher. That's what we do. So we had a group of 50 people, and we created Microsoft Office back then, uh, running on a dumb terminal, email, word processing, document management, uh, personal time management, database, all that stuff. And then uh, we had 50 people in a control group that used pens and papers and secretaries and meetings and telephones and, and physical diaries and 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 faxes and so on. The stuff we've all forgotten now. And the group that had the technology, they performed better, but the big thing was they communicated very differently. And that's what led us to conclude that this is going to become a communications tool. Nobody saw that, or few people saw that. <laughs> I could probably think of a handful <laughs> who agreed with me at the time. Nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come again. And nothing's so much like failure as an idea whose time has not come. The right idea and the, the wrong timing is dreadful too, isn't it? Well, it's funny you say that because, you know, I've written 16 books and half of them were like really big bestsellers and the other half went nowhere. And I think the problem with the other half is the timing was off. And I've come to the conclusion that bad timing is almost as bad as being wrong. Because if nobody reads your stuff, I mean, it's just like if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there, <laughs> does it make a sound? So Anyway, you picked up on the use of computing as a communications tool inside and outside businesses. And then you kind of rode that wave of discovery, didn't you? That was the big theme, wasn't it, of the Internet? And the reason that I'm into a whole new thing now is that what we didn't say back then is that when you communicate information, you're actually not communicating the information. You're sending a copy. I send you a PDF or a PowerPoint or a photo or an email. Even with a website, I keep the original. 
And that's great for information. We've all had a printing press at our fingertips. But when it comes to things that really matter to a company and to the economy, that is assets, things of value that belong to somebody, things like money, you know, stocks or bonds or intellectual property or loyalty points or carbon credits or even cultural assets like art or music or our identities are an asset. A vote is an asset. Copying them is a terrible idea. You don't want someone copying your identity or your vote. And if I send you $1,000, it's really important that I don't still have the money. So this has been a big problem with the whole digital age. We've never had a native digital medium for value. We've only had one where you can publish stuff. And that doesn't work for value. And when we publish people's music, for example, we are taking their asset and we are basically destroying it. So... The way we handle this in our economy is through big intermediaries, banks, governments, credit card companies, social media companies, and they perform all of the business and transaction logic of every type of commerce. They identify the parties, they identify the asset that's really a dollar, that's really a stock. They clear and settle transactions, and they keep records. And overall, they've done a pretty good job, but there are all kinds of growing problems. And we noticed those in 2008 when some of these intermediaries, Wall Street almost brought down the whole capitalist system. So that's that's where all this blockchain stuff comes in. What if there were a native digital medium for value? Some kind of vast global distributed ledger where anything of value could be transacted, managed, stored, moved around in a secure and private way. And where trust was not achieved by a powerful institution like a bank or a credit card company or whatever, but it was achieved by cryptography, by collaboration, and by some clever code. You say what if, there is. Yeah, that's what blockchain is. It's the new, the second era of the internet. Going back to my beginnings, that was the 70s, was the start of the internet of information. And now we're seeing the rise of an internet of value. So I get to keep at this for another four decades to see how this thing plays out. <laughs> now, blockchain, you make it sound so simple. It isn't simple. It's complicated to ordinary people to understand. Yes and no. But you don't understand how the Internet of Information works. HTTIP, what's the difference between uh, that and, and XML or, or SOAP or UDDI is the new lingua franca for distributed computing. People don't need to understand how blockchain works. And, uh, you know, Mark Twain, I'm sorry I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. I've given this TED Talk now. It's, it was my second TED Talk on blockchain. It took me four years to explain it in 18 minutes. And that thing has been viewed by millions of people. And it's actually accelerating in terms of the number of views. So I think that may be some evidence that it is possible to understand this, in, if not instantly, in, in 18 minutes. But it's a question of trust. It's whether I trust established organizations to look after, in quotation mark, and send around my money, yeah. or whether I trust a new one that I don't understand. Now, banks built marble halls to build trust in themselves, didn't they? Bitcoin is pretty sort of invisible. Well, if you look at the Edelman Trust measures, trust in institutions has been cratering. For years, and it's at an all-time low. You know, your vote. People are not trusting governments today. They don't trust financial institutions. They don't trust big social media companies. 
and they don't trust traditional media. And we've now got a president of the United States who says none of these are trustworthy. We have a crisis of legitimacy of our democratic institutions, and the leader of the free world is saying they are not legitimate. There's massive fraud, and the center of world democracy is a swamp. On the other hand, with blockchain, trust is verifiable. So if you send me something, let's say you you sell me something, you don't even need to know who I am. All you need to know is 100% that you got paid, have cryptographic proof that you've been paid. So we could do a transaction now on a blockchain where we trust that we will act with integrity because you can't cheat it. It's based into the system. Trust is native to the medium. You also mentioned Bitcoin. Now remember, this is not about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just one blockchain, but there are a thousand blockchains. I don't think it'll even be the most important one in a couple of years. There are others that are emerging to be more useful and more important. Now, but talking of popular images, Bitcoin is the one that sort of intrudes, and Bitcoin is an, an exceptionally volatile thing at the moment. And if Bitcoin were to go bust, then that would damage the whole concept of the underlying technology of, of uh, blockchain very much, wouldn't it? Well, what would that mean for Bitcoin to go bust? Someone hacks the Bitcoin blockchain, good luck with that. That's like trying to turn a Chicken McNugget back into a chicken. I mean, this is a highly processed thing to hack it. You'd have to hack not just that one 10-minute block. That block is only valid if it references the previous block, the whole chain of blocks. So you'd have to hack the entire history of Bitcoin, not just on one computer, but across millions of computers simultaneously, all of them using the highest level of cryptography. That's going to be tough to do. I won't say it's unhackable, but this is infinitely more secure than the systems that you use today in your bank or the CIA uses because the CIA and JP Morgan and Home Depot and a whole bunch of others have all been hacked. Now, what if Bitcoin collapses in terms of its market value? That is possible. But considering that it's gone up so much, the actual real value of a Bitcoin is probably around $1,000 because that's how much energy is used to be able to mint a Bitcoin, if you like. But to me, this is only important to people who are speculators. Bitcoin is an asset class. It's like a stock or gold or something. Sure, if you're a speculator, go for it. But Bitcoin is something much more important. It's the first example of a blockchain. And it's that underlying technology that can be used to do all kinds of amazing things beyond just moving money around. Such as? Whoa, where do I start? <laughs> well, let's use a money example to start. So Annalie Domingo is a housekeeper in Toronto, and for 20 years she gets on the bus, cashes her check, gets on the bus, and the subway goes to the Western Union office that specializes in the Philippine diaspora. And she sends her remittances, it's a trillion dollar industry, back to her mom in the Philippines, 400 bucks. And takes four to seven days, she gets charged 10%. So a year and a half ago, Annalie Domingo used a mobile device and a tool called Abra, sent the money from her mobile directly to her mom's mobile. It arrived there in a second. And then her mom looks at the user interface and their cars driving around. These are tellers. And she sees a five-star teller. He's seven minutes away. She clicks on that. The guy shows up at her door, gives her Filipino pesos that she sticks in her pocket. The whole thing cost her one and a half percent. So these people have been being ripped off. And now blockchain can come in and enable them to give money home. And this money is not used for partying. It's used for food and rent. 
period, food and housing. So that would be one of thousands of ways that this technology can be used to build a better world. There's also the evidence chain that attaches to a blockchain transaction, isn't there? The transparency of it. It's a powerful thing, you see, because you can use a blockchain to know the provenance of something. So conflict diamonds has been a huge problem. Hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, have died because diamonds are used for tribal warfare and for criminal activity and all kinds of other things. Well, now, because of a company called Everledger and some other partnerships, they're using blockchain to track the provenance of a diamond. You can know how that diamond is moved through the whole supply chain, and you can be confident that when you buy it, it's not a conflict diamond. Same thing with land titles. 70% of the people in the developing world that own land don't have a valid title to that land. So, uh, you know, you're in Honduras, you've got a little farm, a dictator comes to power, he says, I know you got a piece of paper, says you own your farm, but our <laughs> central computer says that my friend owns your farm. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, you put land titles on a blockchain and no dictator can mess with them, unless he knows how to turn a chicken McNugget back into a chicken. This is very important, and it's a good reason why supply chains like Walmart and Foxconn are experimenting big time with blockchain, Federal Express now, thinking about moving to a blockchain platform where they can have a shared state. Everybody can see exactly what's going on. Where is this information stored? Well, it's stored on computers, millions and millions of computers all around the world. Each of them has a copy. How do they get it? How are they locked in? How do they become part of the blockchain confraternity? Well, it depends which one you're using. We started with Bitcoin. If I pay you that $1,000, that transaction is broadcast out to a global network of millions of computers, each using the highest level of cryptography. And uh, all around the world are a group of people called miners, not young people like gold miners. And they have massive computing power estimated to be 20 to 50 times bigger than Google in the world. And these miners do a lot of work to find out the truth. And every 10 minutes, this block gets created. And the miners compete to achieve consensus about the truth. And the winning miner gets paid some of the cryptocurrency from that blockchain. And then that block is connected to the previous block to create this chain of blocks. So everybody will soon enough be having some kind of blockchain capability running on their computer and, and on their mobile device and on all kinds of other things. Who invented all this? Well, it all started in 2008 when an anonymous person or persons named Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a paper called Bitcoin, a new form of digital cash. Nobody knows who, who he, she, they are. You know, everyone's got a theory. But uh, it doesn't really matter because the whole community now is Satoshi Nakamoto. This whole community is building this thing, not, not the inventor. So attractive that people would uh, spend time, energy doing this in the same way that uh, the Wikipedia was constructed. Well, yes, although Wikipedia was an act of philanthropy where people did it for lots of reasons, uh, their reputation, because um, it was fun as a hobby to build up their resume. But miners today don't do it for fun. They do it to make money. If they participate in the creation of a block, they get paid some of the cryptocurrency. So value is actually an incentive 
for participating in this thing, which is kind of cool because there's a real interdependent that, that you can't succeed unless everybody's succeeding. And you are convinced it's unhackable because most things are hackable. Well, I never use the word unhackable. I just say it's infinitely more secure than the kind of computer systems we have today. Now, you were talking at the Drucker Forum here under the umbrella title, The Role of Technology Threat or Catalyst for Human Prosperity. And you presumably are in favor of using more and more computer power, more and more technology. What I said in the session was it is a threat and it is a catalyst and it depends what we do. It's a catalyst for change. I mean, we have this big problem, growing wealth and declining middle class. What's with that? You know, the benefits of the digital age have been captured by this tiny handful of companies. And blockchain enables us to have a more distributed model where rather than redistributing wealth, we can pre-distribute wealth. We can make the economy more democratic, bring a couple of billion people into the economy who aren't there and who are unbanked, sure that people have valid titles to their land, create a new halcyon age of, uh, of entrepreneurship and so on. But the dark side is rich with problems. A really big one is this technology combined with artificial intelligence will, I think it'll wipe out whole sectors of the workforce. The number one job type in the U.S. for men is truck driver. That's going to be gone and not in 50 years, in 15 years. We are going to need a new social contract. And, you know, my writings over the years have been pretty positive. I've always pointed out there is a dark side. I mean, the digital economy in 1994, they say was the first big bestseller about the web. It was promise and peril in the age of networked intelligence. And I went through all these dark side things that could happen, the destruction of our privacy, fragmentation of social discourse, structural unemployment, governments using this rather than to improve democracy, to make democracy worse, on and on. And all of them occurred. Every one of these dangers that I pointed out actually happened. And I found this out because I was asked to write the 20th anniversary edition of the digital economy, and I had to... Read it again. Yeah, I had to read it, and it, it held up really well. But the thing that really popped out was this dark side stuff. It all occurred. So when you think about blockchain, it's not, this is not going to solve our problems. Humans solve problems, not technology. But I think that, and the way Alex and I described it in uh, Blockchain Revolution, is that once again... He's your son and co-author. Yeah, yeah. And what a joyous experience that was uh, working with him on the book, I'll tell you. What we said was, once again, the technology genie has escaped from the bottle. And it was summoned by this anonymous person or persons with unclear motives at this uncertain time in human history. It's not going to solve our problems, but it gives us another kick at the can, another opportunity to get this right, to rewrite the economic power grid and the old order of things, but only if we will it. Still need humans. Afraid so. <laughs> You might not he need humans in an organization, though. I, I think a lot of management will be software <laughs> rather than people. Well, you can come back and examine that in 10 years' time. Don Tapscott, thank you very much indeed. This is the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day. Another podcast coming up soon.